I apologize for my bullfroggy voice this morning. It has been one of those weeks in which we have all shared and passed around whatever respiratory ailment is, is making its rounds. And so my, my voice is, is weak today, so I appreciate your, your prayers for the Lord to give me uh, strength uh, to teach and preach today, and also uh, a clarity of mind. I've been kind of brain foggy uh, along with the, the sinus stuff. So we'll pray and ask for the Lord to help us, uh, both the hearer and the speaker this morning, as we consider the topic of the extent of God's providence. We've been working through His providence and, and the doctrine of God's providence. We've, we looked last week at His use of means, and that God ordinarily, meaning typically, commonly, but also by statute, by rule, has decreed the use of means to accomplish His, his eternal purposes. And He is free, of course, to work, as we saw last week, without those means, he is free to work against those means. He is free to work uh, above those ordinary means. But we have to wrestle with the question of to what extent does God's providence, how, what, to what extent does God govern the world by means of his providence? It becomes a somewhat of a thorny question. So we'll look today at our, our confession, paragraph 4 in chapter 5, and look at the, the Word of God is to help us to understand this. Let's pray and seek the Spirit's help as we enter into the deep mysteries of the very mind of God. Our God and our Father, we give you thanks and praise that you've brought us here today, that by your, your strength and according to your goodness, you sustain us day by day. You give, you give breath in our lungs, you give thoughts in our minds, you sustain us in every way, and so we plead for your help and your mercy for both speaker and hearer this morning as we give our attention to your word, as we labor to, to understand as much as our finite minds are able to understand how you work out your eternal decree, your perfect and glorious wisdom in time and space as you providentially, wisely govern and rule all things. Help us to discern this. Help us to look to you as the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us to look to you as the God who has declared himself good and just and holy and a God who delights to show mercy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> as I said in the beginning, when we, we looked last week at, at God's means, and as we're looking at this doctrine of providence, uh, we've def so far in our confession, we've, we've looked at the definition of this, that God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things. And he uses everything according to their own natures to accomplish his purposes. And that God ordinarily uses means. But inevitably, when we confess that God rules and governs everything, when we confess that God is sovereign, over all things that have come to pass or will ever come to pass, the question immediately comes up, what about evil? What do we do with evil? What do we do with wickedness? What do we do with bad things happening in this world? When we confess that God governs all things, from the least to the greatest, the inevitable question, the inescapable question comes up, 
And it comes up not only in, from the mouth of scoffers and skeptics. We expect it there. But if we're honest, the question comes up in our own minds as well. Not only at the, the macro level, at the, at the cosmic level, when we look out and we see evil in the world generally, that question is likely to come, why does God allow this? But more specifically and, and, and more personally, when evil comes to our door, when sorrow comes to our house, when despair seems to overtake us in our own minds, we may ask, why did God allow this? Why has God allowed evil to come? And, or maybe even, why would a good God allow such evil? So the, the topic before us today, and, and by the way, we're only going to look at the first phrase within paragraph 4. I'll read the whole, the whole text of paragraph 4 in a few moments, but we're really only going to concentrate on the first the first part of it. That's, that's more than enough to chew on in one sitting, as it were. So we're looking today at the extent of God's providence. I introduced, or perhaps introduced to you, a term back when we were covering chapter 3 on God's decree. And, and this same topic began to emerge there. The seed was planted that we would look at it again in chapter 5, but the term is theodicy. Theodicy. And it involves the combining of two Greek words. One, you hear the theo, theos, which is God, and combine that with the word dikaos, which is justification. So it is a justification of God. And so that's really the subject we're looking at. Is if God is, is providentially ruling everything, and we know that evil exists, then how do we, in a sense, justify God in that? How do we explain those things? How do we reconcile those in our mind? We really only have, broadly speaking, three choices. We have three general choices. One, we can believe that God is able to stop evil. That, he's, that He has the power, He has the capacity, but He is hands-off. He chooses not to intervene. That he, that he set this world in motion, and that the world is just happening as it's going to happen, Evil men are going to do evil things, and God is either helpless or unwilling to intervene. Or, we can say that God is able, is not able to stop evil. And that the will of man is such that, the freedom of man is such that, that God is not able to do anything about the pressing problem of evil. And in this case, God's goodness is not questioned but his power is suspect. In the first option, God possesses power and ability, but his goodness is in question. So we can either question his power, or we can question his goodness. Or is there a way to reconcile those together? And you know, when, when a, a teacher gives you three options, it's always the last one that's the correct one, right? And the last one is, is God governs all things to, the, to such an extent that he actually uses sin and evil to accomplish his good purposes. That God's governance of all things is so extensive that he uses even sin and wickedness and evil to accomplish his good purposes. So as we handle today the very first phrase of our confession, we're going to see that the answer 
that the Second London Confession gives, in fact, all other Reformed Confessions give, is that third option. That God is, in fact, governing all things. There are not, there's not one aspect of all of creation that God has decided to be hands-off or passive. God is not without the ability to do all that He pleases, all that He has decreed. And God is not lacking at all in His character or His goodness that would hinder Him from using that power and authority. And so God governs all things to, the, to such an extent that He makes use of sin and evil to accomplish His good purposes. And you, you may notice in your, in your copy of the Confession some of the footnotes that are there. And I'm, I'm going to read some of those footnotes before we look at the actual paragraph in our confession. But it's very interesting. The, the first footnote is in First Chronicles chapter 18. If you turn with me there, I'm sorry, it's First Chronicles 21, but I'm going, to, I'm going to read first out of chapter 18 and kind of give you a, a sense of where we are in the, in the narrative of Israel's history so that when we read what's in chapter 21, it might make more sense to us. In chapter 17 of First Chronicles, we have the record of God making a covenant with David. We know this as the Davidic covenant, that, that one day God would establish the throne of David forever. Then in chapters, chapter 17 is a record of David defeating the Philistines. I mean, this is, this is an accumulation of foe after foe, enemy after enemy, falling to David's rule. And in, at the very end of chapter 18, beginning at verse 14, we read this. So David reigned over all Israel. And this is the United Kingdom. This is before the split of Judah and Israel. This has been a growing uh, kingdom that's growing not only geographically in its scope, but in its prosperity. So David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and equity to all his people. This is a foreshadowing. It's a foretaste of the heavenly reign of the son of David. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Shabshah was secretary. And Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Jerathites and the Pelathites. And David's sons were the chief officials in the service of the king. Everything was going well. The kingdom of David was advancing and growing and prospering. Then we have the narration in chapter 19. David and the king of the Ammonites had an arrangement. But as often is the case, when one dies and his son takes his place, things have to be renegotiated. David attempts to, to communicate his favor towards the son of Nahash, the Ammonite who had died, and David's, or the son of, uh, of Nahash and his companions acted foolishly. They humiliated David's messengers. In fact, they shaved their beards, they cut off their garments, and they sent them back embarrassed and ashamed. And so David goes, and he, he, he before they even get to them, he get back to David, back to Jerusalem. Messengers had arrived, and David sent messengers out to greet the men and to just stay here until your beards grow back. Here are some new clothes. And David went and wiped out the Ammonites. So it's in, in all of that 
That's the backdrop that we find the footnote in our confession of faith. We're thinking about God's providential rule, and we're thinking about the extent of God's providential rule. Here is a kingdom that's prospering. Here is a, is a good king, a godly king, a mighty king. In chapter 1, here's what we read. Or chapter 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Let that sink in. Here is the, the, the king of promise. A godly man. The king that's described in the scriptures as being a man after God's own heart. Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, <laughs> Now Joab is not exactly known for his scruples, is he? This is not a man with a tender conscience, shall we say. And even Joab says, I don't think this is a good idea. Listen to Joab. Joab, verse 3, said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord, the king, all of them, my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer to you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine, or three months of devastation by your foes, while the sword of your enemies overtakes you or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O my Lord, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be upon 
your people. Now, it's a profound thing that God would use the instrument, the means, of Satan to provoke David in this way, to tempt David in this way. And yet, in the midst of this, and we'll come back to this in a moment, but notice verse 13, David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. Do not let me fall into the hand of man. David stands and rests in the character of God, even in the midst of his own sin. That's an important thing to kind of put a pin there, and we'll come, come back to it, because our confession builds upon that idea that God's character is decisive in how we think about the nature of evil and the presence of evil. But now having read that, you, you, you know in, in Chronicles, there is a, a summary, um, a restatement of many of the events that are, are covered in the books of the kings, including Samuel, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings. So now let's turn to the book of Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter twenty-four. Remember. The author of the Chronicles records it this way, Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So which is it? Is it Satan that incited David? Or was it the Lord who incited David? What's the answer? Yes, both. God through the instrument of Satan. So here we have we have before us a mystery. How do we reconcile this in our minds? And the, and the short answer is we don't entirely. We cannot entirely in our finite creaturely minds comprehend this. However, what we can confess is what is truly given to us in the Scriptures that God used the instrument of Satan, and so that it is both true, these are not contradictory statements. When we look at Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1, and we look at 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, and one says God incited, and the other one said Satan incited, they are both true. They do not contradict. No more than when we go and, and we go to the book of Exodus, and we read about Pharaoh, and how again and again and again, God would send a plague, and the Scriptures will tell us alternately that Pharaoh hardened his heart. In other places, it will say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which is it? It is both. Now, with these things in mind, let's read our confession. <clears throat> I'm going to read the entirety of paragraph 4, but again, we're going to cover only the first phrase that ends with, Following the, the semicolon, both of angels and men, there's a semicolon. That's where we will we'll focus today. But I'm going to read the, the entire paragraph. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall, 
and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men. And that, not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth, and otherwise ordereth and governeth, in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. And I'm going to comment just briefly on that last phrase and, and take you back to David's statement in First Chronicles chapter 21 that David confesses, it is I and I alone who have caused this. It was my own sin, my own wickedness that provoked this within me. And because of that, he called upon the Lord for mercy. And yet we, we know that it was the Lord who incited this. Our, our topic today in this first phrase really gets to the, to, the, to the heart of the matter. What is the extent of God's providential rule? And particularly with respect to the question of evil, the presence of sin and wickedness, what is the extent? Again, our choices are we either believe that God is, is able to stop evil, but he has decided not to, in which now we've called into question his, his goodness, haven't we? Or we can say God is, is able, or is not able to stop evil. That in the face of wickedness and sin, the Lord is simply helpless. Well, now we're not calling into question his goodness, we're calling into question his power, his ability. Neither of those are acceptable options for us as those who believe in the Scriptures, as those who believe in God. So what, what do we do? We have to recognize that God uses sin, evil, wickedness to accomplish His purposes. So here's two, two things, two main points that we take out of this first phrase in, in chapter or paragraph 4. The first is that God's character must govern our thinking on this matter. Our understanding of God's character must govern how we approach. Before we think about anything else, we must think about the character of God. And again, this is true when we look at the, at the macro level, we look at the cosmos, we look at all of the world, and we see sin and iniquity, and, and, and what are we tempted at that point to focus on primarily? The circumstances. The world itself. We fix our eyes upon the evil, rather than upon the character of God. And what the Scriptures commend to us is to fix our eyes upon the character of God. And that's, of course, what David did. He set his hope, he set his eyes upon the mercy of God. But the second thing, the second point, and I'm going to elaborate on both of these, is that even in the presence of sin and evil, God is revealing that character. That God is actually revealing his character through the very presence of sin and evil. Let's think about these two points briefly. When we consider the presence and harm of evil men in this world, how should we think? And, and maybe more precisely, on, on what or on whom should we think? When, when we look at world, the, the wickedness in the world around us, where do our thoughts go? And when we look at wickedness near to us. We look at sin, we look at sorrow, we look at suffering that's near to us. 
Where do our thoughts go? Where should where ought they to go? What should govern our thoughts? Notice the language of the confession. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves or display or reveal themselves in his providence. Now this, this of course, is taking us back to the beginning of the chapter. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things. And that, of course, takes us back to chapter 2. chapter 2, paragraph 1, this is what we confess about our God. The Lord our God is but only one living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is, this is a description of the character of God, the the essence of God, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him and withal most just and terrible in his judgment, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty, Then at the beginning of paragraph 2, we see, we confess that God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them. With those reminders to us of who God is, it makes a lot of sense that our our forefathers, as they contemplated this issue, as they contemplated the the presence of sin and evil with relation to God's providential rule, that they wisely came back to God's character, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God. That that's a that's a summary statement. But it, it's a, it reminds us, it points us back to all the other things that we have already confessed that are true about our God. So what should govern our thoughts when we are, not if, but when we are confronted with the reality, with the suffering, with the presence of sin and evil and wickedness? What should govern our thoughts is who God is of who he has said, what he has said about himself. You turn with me to Ex- the book of Exodus. <clears throat> the book of Exodus, chapter 34. This is the scene in which the Lord commands Moses 
<clears throat> to create a new set of tablets or, new, or bring a new stone so that the Lord would once again write the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments upon a new set of stone. What happened to the first set? In his anger, Moses threw it down and broke it because of the idolatry of God's people. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 34 of Exodus, the Lord said to Moses, notice here not only what's happening, but notice in particular what the Lord says about himself. This is in response to sin and evil and wickedness inside the camp. This is an immediate response to God's people demonstrating their own sin natures. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. But no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone, like the first. And he rose early in the morning, and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud, and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. What does the Lord testify about himself in the midst of sin and rebellion and wickedness? He testifies that he is a God, number one, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and also a God who will by no means clear the guilty. So what, saints, what should govern our thoughts when we are confronted with evil? We should not doubt in any way the power and ability of our God. We should not doubt his power and ability to rescue, to deliver, to make all things right. But nor should we doubt his goodness, his willingness. Based on God's testimony about himself, we cannot doubt those things. So we must, even when we don't understand it, even when it's beyond our comprehension, we must confess that God in his wisdom will actually use those things the very evil, the very wickedness which vexes us is an instrument in God's hands to accomplish his purposes. Now we're going we're to spend more time working that out uh, next time as we look at the rest of the paragraph. But just for now, 
What, what ought to be our disciplined, conditioned, reflexive kind of response when we see evil? When we see evil out there, when we see evil close to home, when we see evil inside of us, what should be our reflexive response? What should govern our thoughts? And the answer is the character of God. We meditate upon the person of God, the character of God. I continue to be amazed at, as we work through these, these lessons in our Sunday school hour and our confession, and then as I meditate upon the text for our sermon and see how often there is an overlap. And one of the things we will see in the, in the sermon text this morning in the second half of Mark chapter 5 is a meditation upon the character, the person of our Redeemer. Not only his acts, not only his works, but his person, who he is. The second thing we want to consider, I think the, same, the second main point in this first phrase in chapter or paragraph 4 of our confession, the first point is that God's character governs our thinking. So for us as his people, we have to discipline our minds, because this isn't our natural impulse, is it? When, 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 when we, we are confronted with evil, our natural focus is to look to the evil. Um, it's kind of like, you know, any, uh, anybody who's involved in, in workplace safety and things like that will tell you, if you hear a crash, don't look up. But what's our instinctive? We look up. And that's what's, you know, then it's Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner, isn't it? Something's, the anvil's about to fall on us. And in a similar way, when we see evil, what's our reflexive? We want to look to the evil. We, we want to think about those things. We want, to, we want to even just wallow in that. And what the Scriptures commend to us again and again and again is to look to the character of our God. To find our hope, to find our comfort there. But the other thing that we, we want to consider, the second point in this, as we think, as we meditate upon the extent of God's providence. Notice these almighty, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves, or so far reveal themselves in His providence that His determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men. That's a comprehensive statement, isn't it? The providence of God extends how far? To everything. Even to the fall. God decreed the fall of man. God in His providence caused. He was the first cause of the fall of man. God in His providence makes use of the means of sinful actions, both of angels and men. In fact, it says all other sinful actions. It's a comprehensive term. To what end? For what purpose does God do this? When the answer is to reveal, to manifest His character. So, the two points to this is kind of thinking both inwardly and outwardly. When we see evil inwardly, we are to set our minds, our thoughts, upon the character of God. But also to recognize outwardly, God is displaying, He is manifesting
His power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness to all the world. You'll see in your, in your the text of your confession, or the footnote to it, the footnote to Romans 11, in Paul's epistle to the Romans, <clears throat> those of us who are Calvinists know this very well. Beginning in chapter 9, Paul is, is wrestling through this doctrine of God's sovereignty. That even to the point of, he gives the example of Jacob and Esau. Even before they were born, even before they had the ability to do good or evil, meaning outside the womb, God had set his love upon Jacob, and Esau he hated. And so as Paul's working through that, and then he's, he's thinking about the implications for his kinsmen according to the flesh. And so in chapters 9 and 10 and 11, he's, he's wrestling with predestination and the sovereignty of God and salvation of men as a result of that sovereign election, or the damnation of men because of their refusal to hear and believe. And Paul concludes that there's no deficiency in the Word of God, there's no deficiency in the promises of God. And as he wrestles through this, he gets to the end of chapter 11. And in verse 32, Paul says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I Meaning his ways are past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has, been given a, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forevermore. Amen. Even the mysteries of God's decree and providence are cause for praise for us. As we, as we meditate upon the character of God as, as, as individual believers, not, again, as, 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 a, as a remote possibility, but when we observe evil in the world, where does our mind go? Where, do, where are we training and disciplining our mind to go? To the character of God. But then also believing by faith that even the presence of sin and evil is ultimately going to manifest, it's going to be revealing of God's covenant mercies. It's going to reveal God's covenant mercies. And as Paul works through these very issues, in his own mind, he, he just breaks out and prays. There's a doxology here in Paul's own thinking. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God is worthy, saints, of our praise, even in the midst of them. Even the mysteries of God's decree and providence are cause for us to praise. Stephen Charnock, a Puritan writer, expresses it this way. I think this is a helpful insight. He says, The holiness of God is not blemished by His secret will to suffer sin to enter into the world. It is no knock on the character of God that sin exists. 
God is the first cause, according to His decree, that the, the, his, his providential rule extends even to the fall of man and to all sinful actions of every sinful man and of every wicked angel. And yet, God's holiness is not blemished. Now, can you wrap your mind around that? I can't. We can confess from the Scriptures it's true. Charnock goes on, he says, God never willed sin by his preceptive will. It was never founded upon or produced by any word of his, meaning sin was not founded upon or produced by any word of his as the creation was. He never said, let there be sin under the heaven, as he said, let there be water under the heaven. Nor does he will it by infusing any habit of it or stirring up inclinations to it. No, God tempts no man, James 1.13, nor does he will it by his approving will. It is detestable to him, nor ever can be otherwise. He cannot approve it either before commission or after. This is why when we compare, for example, 1 Chronicles 18 and 2 Samuel 24, God is the first cause. And Samuel in his record of this records that. But the instrumentality, the instrument by which God accomplished his eternal decree, the instrument by which he governed providentially all things, including even the heart of David, was the instrument of Satan. He used sin, he used evil, he used wickedness to accomplish his purposes. God intended to chastise his people, and he used the instrument of evil in order to do that. There's much more that, that needs to be worked out, and it's worked out in, in the next, um, well, the rest of this paragraph and, and the paragraph to follow. So over the next, well, the next two weeks, we will take a break from Sunday school. We return after the first of the year. We're going to labor to, to work through this. Because it is a thorny issue, and it's an issue that if you do any um, if you do any evangelism, if you do apologetics, inevitably the question comes up. Uh, sometimes it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question from a scoffer. It's a question from someone who's just angry and has no interest in the things of God. Other times the question comes, it's an honest question. How do we reconcile these things? How do, how do we think rightly? Maybe it's a brother or sister who's in a moment of weakness is thinking, how do, I, how do I reconcile the goodness of my God with this calamity that has come, with this sorrow that has come? I spoke with a dear friend of mine just this last week who um, not two months ago suddenly lost his, his oldest son, early 50s. And... and their hope and their trust is, is in their sovereign God who has brought such calamity to them, such sorrow to them. And yet they're grateful, they're thankful, even in the midst of that, for the Son's true and, and convincing confession of Christ, that he, that he died in Christ. And so, as, as, as this brother said to me, he is not missing us right now. We are missing him. 
But how do you reconcile those two? If you're not disciplining yourself to come back again and again to the very character of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, and the wisdom of God to use all these things to accomplish His purposes, even when we can't see it. And so we've got more work to do with respect to the, the question of evil, uh, but we will we'll spend probably our next at least two or three uh, lessons trying to work through uh, more of that question. We'll close there and pray. Um, and I'll let you reserve your questions, build upon them for our next couple sessions. Father, we are, we are thankful that you are indeed a merciful God. Uh, we're grateful that even when we are not able uh, to comprehend it, even when our faith is, is weak such that we struggle to believe it, we know that you, that your goodness, your, your almighty power, your unsearchable riches of wisdom are being revealed, being displayed, not only to our hearts, but to all the world. Lord, we pray that you will grant to us the grace uh, to rest in you, uh, to trust you in all of these things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.